0: That literal sense is the way we go unless it makes no sense. That's a wrong axiom to use hmm. uh, for not just Bible interpretation, but trying to function uh, in life, you know, every, everyone agrees that accommodation is done. And we have all every theological stripe. It's just a question of how it works. Hmm. Uh, young earth creationists hold to accommodation. And so do old Earth creationists that scripture is not trying to teach that model. Yes. Right. Uh, right. scripture assumes that kind of that sort of model mm. in the language that it uses because that's what most efficiently would communicate to an ancient israelite but the text nowhere is sort of trying to teach that that's the way it is <laughs>
1: Hello everyone, this is what Your Pastor in Tell You. Today I'm on with Dr. John Hilbert. We're gonna be talking about the cosmology and how we read the Bible in light of how the ancient Israelites viewed the world and the cosmos and all that. How are you doing today, Dr. Hilbert?
0: Very good. Thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Okay, so uh, first of all, you know, I would assume most people aren't familiar with your work. Can you give us just a general understanding of just your background?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I uh, came to faith in high school and went away to college and studied geology as my undergraduate degree, which explains why this whole question of cosmological language, uh, you know, has been itching, uh, you know, itching me since I was young. And in some ways, my journey even to seminary was to try to help figure these things out. You know i had the geology side i needed the biblical studies side as well so after graduating from university of washington in geology i went off to dallas seminary uh, i did semitics in old testament for my background uh, studies and uh, fell in love with the old testament uh, obviously and have never turned back uh, since then uh, a- after graduation though my wife and i we m- got married during Seminary years, we uh, went uh, back into pastoral ministry, a church that we met uh, doing church planning, and I did pastoral ministry for 15 years uh, in a multiple staff situation. So I, I have a pastor's heart, and that was the first half of our life, I guess you might say. And you know, midlife hits, and is it a you know a Corvette with gold chains or more education? and we decided to have more education so we <laughs> sold everything and went back went back to school uh, to cambridge i did a phd in uh, old testament and ancient near eastern studies uh, where i really plowed into kind of the background ancient near eastern texts so the Mes- when i say that i mean the Mes- you know the babylonians mesopotamia egyptians the hittite peoples who are in what's modern day turkey uh, and uh, the Canaanites, all the people that lived in in the world around uh, Israel, I spent a lot of time working on that and, and their texts. Uh, so, so all this time, I was, you know, back of my mind, I, I you know, I'm percolating ideas about trying to sort out uh, seeming discrepancies between what some interpretations of the Bible. Uh, here, I got to turn off my mail program or it will beep every time something comes in. Sorry about that. Um, it, uh, trying to sort out uh, uh, how different interpretations of the Bible uh, can seem to be not in conflict with uh, with what we know from science. And I take both seriously. I'm, you know, I'm a card-carrying inerrantist. Uh, you know, I'm a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, so I've got conservative roots uh, to this day. Y- y- you know, inerrancy means a lot of different things to different people we don't have mm-hmm. to unpack it now but just the point that i you know that i uh, take scripture seriously it's true and whatever it affirms is true i'm committed to that uh, as a matter of my confession <clears throat> so uh, af- after graduating uh, uh from cambridge we went into teaching at seminary i taught at dallas for eight years grand rapids uh, theological seminary for uh, 10 years and i'm at mcmaster divinity college now uh while i was in grand rapids i got to spend a year at trinity evangelical and divinity college doing uh, my uh, sabbatical with their creation project was which was funded by the templeton foundation and i spent the year working on this whole problem of uh, how language is accommodated To our understanding, uh, and we'll talk more about that later, I guess. And out of that emerged uh, most of the uh, results and conclusions that we'll be talking about uh, in this recording.
1: Very cool. Okay, can you give us a five-minute summary of your book?
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, Yeah, I can picture here. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, Old Testament cosmology uh, and divine accommodation. uh, a relevance theory approach. So Old Testament cosmology, how did the ancients and ancient Israel think about their world, their universe, you know, from a physical standpoint? How did they conceive of the world and the heavens and the sea and all, all the things around it? That's the question of cosmology. And the question of accommodation has to do uh, with how God uh, adapts language to human understanding. Uh, the very fact that he chose Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, uh, that in itself is an accommodation. He didn't choose my language, English. He chose Hebrew uh, initially. And so, uh, you know, God is, is, is by necessity having to uh, limit himself in some way. And the old church uh, fathers talked about condescension. You know, he lowers himself to our level. Calvin used the phrase baby talk. Uh, So it's a concept that's been around since the earliest church fathers uh, uh, that's really, uh, it's a necessary move uh, theologically to make because God being infinite and us being finite, uh, how does he communicate uh, to us in a way that communicates not only to late bronze Iron Age Israelites and, you know, Greco-Roman time you know, Jews and Gentiles coming to Jesus, and people in the Middle Ages and in the Scientific Age. How does He communicate to all of us in in a way that's meaningful? And so, the question of accommodation tries to answer that uh, that question. Uh, we'll, mm-hmm. And we can talk more about what accommodation uh, is and how and how it works. And I'm doing it using a model of communication called Relevance Theory. Uh, that's not. Uh, it's a linguistic model that's very well known, but it's been around for probably 30 years and, and highly respected among specialists in linguistics and it it provide that model provides some ways of thinking about how uh, communication works and how language works that I think s- uh, sorts out some problems uh, for us uh, in the biblical text so that uh, you know I can, maintain my faith that Bibles true and what it affirms is true well how is that does that work so uh, that that's the title the first chapter is is an introduction to relevance theory and I also then explain how uh, relevance theory helps us uh, specifically to, to read Genesis chapter 1 I use Genesis 1 as my model uh, to limit myself to that that text showing how the You know, the language of of Genesis 1 has similar hook phrases as ancient Near Eastern creation accounts and how all that works uh, in in the way of communication. Uh, And we'll talk about relevance theory more, but relevance theory is very interested in the the environment the the cognitive environment, the mental worldview of of the people in a communication. Uh, situation. So you've got to look at all that background. Uh, So uh, chapter two then uh, plows uh, some other things you might be interested in too in chapter one is uh, some rather challenging ideas that relevance theory puts forth that literal interpretation is not the proper default uh, mode of interpretation. Uh, That's pretty well accepted across the board among linguists whether they're relevance theory people or you know or speech act people or you know what whoever people who work in linguistics uh i've talked to a fair number and to to every person has reaffirmed that literal interpretation is not the default in human communication so we can talk about that and and relevance theory underscores that uh, for us so those kinds of things in chapter one chapter two I delve deeply into ancient Near Eastern, uh, sort of their worldview, their, their world map is maybe a better way of thinking about it. Because it's not just culture, I'm, in, I'm interested also in how they saw the physical universe. Uh, and it's a very challenging, you know, three, 4,000 year gap to jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have some texts that help us to do that. Uh, and what that chapter does is it sets up the problem of why it's important to to think carefully about accommodation because the ancient israelites had some assumptions about the world that just aren't true and some of the language in the bible uh, alludes to some of those background ideas Mm -hmm. Uh, and so how do what do we do with that in terms of bringing them together uh, to affirm the truthfulness of scripture if that kind of language is brought into the text so with that problem in view, I in chapter three I go over the the whole history of interpretation, starting with the earliest church fathers, all the way through the you know the the more or less modern you know period of the people in the twentieth century who pretty much defined for us our doctrine of inspiration as we have it today, and what we call inerrancy or truthfulness of Scripture, infallibility, whatever phrases you want to use, mm-hmm. and look specifically at how they grappled with the problems uh, that accommodation are trying to solve. Uh, mostly, it had to do with trying to understand the incarnation. How did God become a human being? That's the ultimate condescension, uh, is, is God becoming a, a human being, a man. They also wrestle with things like, uh, why is sacrifice sensible when you have mm-hmm. the sacrifice of Jesus? And so they would talk about these things as being sort of teachers or pedagogues to help people of faith come to a higher learning. So so from the earliest days, uh, the church uh, was wrestling and using this notion of accommodation. And I track that theme all the way through church history. Chapter four, having looked at what the church has done with accommodation, uh, I point out the shortcomings in that chapter where they still have not explained how accommodation works very well and that's why relevance theory is, is important and so chapter four is about how relevance theory opens our eyes to accommodation uh, and wrestling with this business of the background assumptions that people have about their physical universe and how that uh, how the language of that works in communication and then uh chapter uh, five i i trace how uh because i use genesis one as my main model i trace through how genesis one is being used in later scripture to show uh, validation that the you know the rest of the pentateuch and the prophets and the wisdom literature uh thinks about creation in genesis the same way that i do using relevance theory Uh, and there are also some theological implications that that roll out of that that i think are helpful Hmm. Uh, You know, the idea of creation out of nothing, which is a potentially Genesis 1 text, is the Trinity in Genesis 1 or not? Relevance theory gives us a a way of thinking about uh, not just sort of the physical cosmos, but even thinking about this question of how God can intend more meaning in the text of the Old Testament than the original authors and original audience appreciated so the, the technical words sense is plenty of fuller meaning uh how you know how is it that the old testament anticipates jesus sometimes in ways that they would not have seen until you know the god man comes along and he lives and dies on the cross and is raised again that gave him sort of the lens through which to to read the old testament again and see things that were there that the divine author intended all along uh and now in the light of the experience that they have of, of Jesus, they can see these things as true and relevance theory explains that at a pretty technical linguistic level, which I think is a, a big help. We'll mm. never get into that in this podcast, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the theological implications are pretty fun and uh, mm. may, maybe another time. Yes. Yeah, so that that's the book. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, as I think I mentioned to you when we were chatting beforehand, it's the book is a, a, quite a mix of of pretty plain illustrations uh mixed in with some pretty technical thick stuff and so there's Mm. something in there for everybody i had a publisher reject it because they said you have two different books here (laughs) two different audiences don't try to do both Uh, and they wanted me to split it into two books and i i was i was
1: burned out and i said forget it (laughs) So,
0: so i kept it together found somebody that would publish it
1: there you go nice oh yeah i would i would highly 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 recommend it one of the best books i've read in a long time and, oh, thank uh, you you know each, each individual chapter is is worth the the purchase alone but uh definitely really good stuff in it okay mm-hmm. so uh obviously you talked about a lot about relevance theory can you give us just i don't know a definition what does it mean yeah um, how do you use it stuff like that
0: um, so uh, relevance theory is just a model of how communication works and it's, it's maybe better illustrated than it is sort of explained in technical detail. So I'm going to illustrate it here. I have a prop. <laughs> uh, you, you you recognize, got to get it in front of the camera. You recognize what this is.
1: Yes, a fruit. It's
0: not just a fruit, it's an apple. And uh, one day leaving chapel with a colleague, uh, it was about noontime and I made the comment to him. I held up an apple and I said, I'm going to keep the doctor away. What did I just say? Well, yeah, i mean am i really going to keep the doctor away no but uh, at, at the processing uh speed of light my colleague uh, put together the physical prop i didn't say anything about you know an apple uh, he saw in the physical environment something that i was you know drawing attention to he knew lunch you know lunch time was uh, upon us because we just left chapel so there was sort of this uh uh, time of day orientation that he had. He also happened to know, because we share the same cultural, uh, liter- you know, uh, liter- uh, literary background. He knew the proverb, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And I was depending on him to supply the first half of that. So there are all these pieces out there. Not in the words that I said, look up in the dictionary. I'm going to keep the doctor away. Look those words up in the dictionary what do they have to do with eating an apple, Hmm. you know, nothing. My, my friend instantly at the speed of light put together these pieces in the physical environment that the code, the linguistic code, the words I used were alluding to and bringing together in context. And his brain was so marvelously created that he was able to infer with a sort of loose logic and for what I was saying. Now, there's another layer to this. Uh, Not only, uh, that's rather trivial that I'm gonna eat an apple for lunch, who cares? But we just happened to have had the day before a debate in faculty meeting, Uh, it was planned. It was discussing the issue of how important our backgrounds in doing Bible interpretation. And I'm on the side that they're really, really important. You know, we believe in the historical grammatical me- method of interpretation. We learn the languages, but we also have to learn the background. Uh, they're two wings of an airplane. And and that's threatening to some people. And so there's another side that wants to minimize how important backgrounds are and say, oh, we just need the text. The Bible's sufficient within itself. And, and I would agree that the Bible is sufficient in itself with the words that are there to get the basic idea, but but to understand a lot of the Bible uh, and uh, and especially difficult texts, we need to enrich it with backgrounds. Hmm. So he knew that I was trying to score a point on the side of the importance of backgrounds. He happened to be more on the other side of the debate, and we're friends. And he chuckled and smiled because uh, he got my my point. You know that that background material is really important for interpretation. So what relevance theory does uh, is it, it it's a model of of how human communication works by inference. We don't look words up in the dictionary and through a rather uh, mechanical process of grammar and syntax put together meaning. we do that, but we much more than that we also uh, we also rely on on the background uh, the assumptions that we we bring to uh, you know, into the conversation. You, you you know, you Zach have an entire encyclopedic entry in your brain about all kinds of things that uh, that you may not share with me. If I say the word "father," uh, that you know opens up a whole you know realm yep. of of an encyclopedic entry about father that some of which you share with me, uh, but much you don't. And the same is true, you know, going. The other direction and so we have these encyclopedic entries and when we talk to each other the speaker or writer is trying to use sufficient words to guide the listener to consider those assumptions that will they can put together and help make meaning of of what mm. we say and uh, I, you know, the better I know your background and uh, the better I know your assumptions, the better I can communicate with you, the more efficiently mm. I can, the less I know you, the more words I have to use to explain things. Mm. So that, that's why, uh, for example, if, if you ever play the game taboo,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, uh, it, it's a game where, you, you know, you have a, a card with a list with a word on it that you have to get your partner to say, and then there's a list of words that you can't say. And so you have to sort of tell stories around the word. And, you know, my wife and I have been married <clears throat> over 42 years now. If you put us in the game with a young married couple, we will absolutely annihilate them in this game. <laughs> because we have a lifetime of yeah. shared experience together that we mm-hmm. can draw off of, allude to, to get the person to know the exact word that I want them to to say. Mm. And so relevance theory gets us to focus on, on background assumptions and how the words we use uh, will, will draw assumptions into the foreground so that we pay attention to them and we can put them together. Even, you know, I said 42 years of marriage, still my wife and I will be talking. I understand the words she's using, but I, I haven't a clue what she's saying, you know, the meaning of it. i I know grammatically what she's saying but i don't know what she means and i say you know we have give ourselves permission to interrupt and just say context and you know she'll she'll maybe say mom okay now instantly my mind (laughs) recalculates everything she said with this narrowed context in view and i instantly make perfect sense of everything that she said because now I know what to bring into the context mm-hmm. of the words that are said. So that that's you know that's how relevance theory explains human communication. Words give stimulus, verbal stimulus to attend to other stimulus in the background. It might be memories. It might be theories about science. It might be our beliefs, faith systems. it might be uh, you know history, anything that can mm-hmm. be you know pulled in. Uh, and uh, what, what speakers are trying to do is use language efficiently and optimally to help you, the listener, to maximize the benefit that you get from the communication. Because that's what you want. If I become irrelevant to you, you know, I see it in class all the time, too often. You know, that, that's a, you know I see the eyes drooping. That's a clue to me that I'm losing people. Uh, and it's because I'm needing to, to itch, you know, uh, them, uh, scratch them where they itch in terms of relevance. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that helps uh, understand. Yeah, sure. in, in a nutshell, that's, that's what relevance theory is. It's something we do every day intuitively. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what my book does is tries to take it apart analytically. And apply mm-hmm. the pieces of it that are most helpful to shed light on some mm-hmm. communication problems mm-hmm. uh, that we have got. Yeah, I don't think of – yeah. Now, I could go on, but uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll come back to this uh, yeah. in, with, with some examples later, I'm sure.
1: No, I was actually going to ask you, could you uh, give just a quick one just to – Get people uh, just a little taste of the water of how you use relevance theory with, like, the Bible. Like, I don't know, example, maybe Genesis 1, you know, you know all those different references there. I don't know. Whatever you want, sure. I think is the best example.
0: Yeah, let, let's start again. I, uh, I want to accommodate, uh, you know, the audience for whom this is all new. Let's start with a non-biblical, non-contentious uh, issue. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's take uh, the tomato now I've got I've got some slide right uh, the 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 produce manager puts tomatoes in with carrots and uh, lettuce and vegetables right and there are assumptions that we all have about uh, tomatoes there are, some assumptions are true other assumptions are patently false uh, tomatoes are fruit they are not vegetables uh, that's a common misunderstanding, uh, and so the produce manager tells the, st- the you know the stock person uh, to put tomatoes in uh, with uh, with the lettuce. Uh, well, th- what the produce manager isn't trying to lie to us. The produce manager is is giving consideration to uh, other needs that are perhaps more relevant. I use that word intentionally. More relevant to the uh, cognitive needs of the shopper, which is culinary uh, in nature, and so you go to uh, to the vegetable section to grab your tomatoes because that's where you're grabbing your other uh, your other uh, salad uh, ingredients. Now, I don't know anyone who runs to the produce manager and accuses uh, him or her of lying uh, to us. We just take it in stride and we make the you know we make the uh, appropriate adjustments if yeah. we know that tomatoes are fruits we don't complain about it but what if you change the context and now we are uh, touring a botanical uh, museum our expectations of relevance have now changed and if we find tomatoes in with uh, the vegetables in a botanical mm. uh, museum we're going to call out the curator uh, for uh, for lying uh, to yeah. us in misleading us <clears throat> so that's a a, a non a, a nice non-biblical example that helps us all understand how uh how these background assumptions can play uh, a role <clears throat> now i, I should uh, i can give it let me give another illustration i don't have a slide for it but it's <laughs> it's really helpful um i make this the statement uh to you zach there is a tree let me see you call back here. All right. Am I back now? You're back. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> I make the statement, there is a tree. Now in your encyclopedic entry about trees, there, there are probably lots of things that you share with, with me. Uh, trees provide shade where there are trees. There is water. Trees uh, have height to them. So you can climb trees and look out if however you are into you know greek mythology chronicles of narnia you, you know sort of the mythic world well trees often are indwelt or they're the, the soul uh, within the tree is the body of of a dyad hmm. you know um uh you know the sort of the uh, dry you know dryad that's it dryad they're called dryads <clears throat> and so there these are all assumptions of things that are in the schema of tree that are associated with trees Mm. now if we are walking uh on a long hike and it's out in the open field and uh the sun's beating down on us and we are sweating profusely and i say zach there's a tree uh what am i saying i well I, i i probably you know to you be saying well let's go get some shade Mm-hmm. Or if we're in the desert and our water skins are getting thin, and we've talked about this, and I said, Zach, there's a tree. Well, there's a promise of an oasis, and we might get some water. Uh, but if we are uh, in the world of Narnia, and, uh, and we're in the work, uh, in, the, uh, in the employment of the White Witch, uh, and she's sending this out to kill good Narnian citizens, mm-hmm. and I say, there's a tree, uh, there's another you know, dryad that we can go kill by cutting the tree down. So do, in, in each case, I've changed the context and the same exact words that you can look up in the dictionary all you want, but the same exact linguistic code triggers a different meaning. I'm saying different things to you depending on how the context changes. Hmm. Now, all of those assumptions, except for the dryads, are true. The dryad assumption is, is false. And so, you know, um, when we're looking at cosmology texts, we have to ask ourselves, what assumptions does the audience have that's maybe shared with the author that are true and are pulled into the context in which assumptions are just kind of maybe left to the side like dryads, you know, and I, you know, say there's a, there's a tree and we're walking through the field on a hot day, you're not gonna think about dryads. Or if you happen to think about dryads, it's not really relevant and it's not part of my informative intention. And so we don't worry about it and, and you move on. Mm. So so those are some non-biblical illustrations. Uh, so, you want so you're want wanting something from biblical cosmology now. Okay, so let me go back to my slides here.
1: Yeah, specifically in how you address that through relevance.
0: Yes. Okay. Uh, let me go back to...
1: Everyone's familiar with context, you know, that random biblical fact, like, yep, you know, Jews used to do this or the Romans used to do this.
0: Okay, uh, let's talk about what they did. Uh, animal sacrifice is another good illustration animal sacrifice. We aren't in co- we are not in cosmology yet, but I'm picking illustrations that that uh will help to illustrate relevance so that when we get on to the you know, more to more uh. contested examples from Genesis 1 or elsewhere, uh, we can understand how it works. So there are false assumptions about food as an offering to the Lord that pleases him. Is it a bribery? Does the Lord really need food? All through the ancient Near East, people assumed that the gods needed food and that they had to be fed. That was the whole, what uh, John Walton talks about, the great symbiosis between the gods and human beings. Those assumptions are absolutely speaking, false. Uh, the Lord doesn't really need food. When an Israelite reads Leviticus chapter 1 verse 9, and they think about bringing a food offering to the Lord, if they have orthodox assumptions, the first thing that's going to trigger in their mind uh, is, uh, this is a sacrifice, something that costs, that costs me that I'm bringing to the Lord. Uh, that's the quickest path to relevance with the least resistance, I'm not going to, if I'm orthodox, I'm not mulling over whether God is hungry or not, because my theology tells me that he's not. Now, if I'm maybe a young convert from paganism, uh, I may have a problem uh, with that, because I have assumptions that, uh, that are not uh, in line with orthodox Israelite faith. And so I might wrongly bring into the communication situation a wrong assumption about uh, the Lord uh, needing food. Uh, and for those kind of situations, uh, you know, God gives a little bit more linguistic code uh, to, to help instruct the new believer that he doesn't really need food, that uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And, and therefore, your offerings don't provide anything for him. They're a token of your sacrifice as you come into communion uh, with the Lord. Now, there's another true assumption that an, animal horns are dangerous. But again, that's not uh, in terms of, of the optimization of language and uh, uh, you know, finding you know, sufficient words that guide me to the meaning. Without being unnecessarily redundant, mm-hmm. uh, I don't have to tell you everything about animals, horns, and, and their tails, and and hoofs, and everything. Uh, that's not relevant to the communication setting. So even those are true. Even though those are true assumptions, they they are they're not implicated. They're not they're they're um, implicit in the background, but they're not implicated in what I'm trying to say to you. So we have this host of assumptions, some are true, some are false, and language that is optimally stated for the audience will guide them uh, to draw on the right assumptions that uh, are uh, needed. All right, now let's get to some uh, cosmology uh, here a little bit. And and we can talk a little bit more about. Uh, I'll just take it for granted that you accept my interpretation of ancient cosmology. <clears throat> uh, and we can talk more uh, if you want about why I, I think some of these things. Not just me, but uh, the people I hang out with anyway are consensus. <laughs> um, the sun rose. Now we uh, have in our modern scientific world the assumption that the earth rotates on its axis uh, and that the sun rising is just an expression we use, it's phenomenological language, that is it's language that just explains kind of what we see Uh, and that's that's all we're trying to state is just an expression of what we experience as a phenomenon and uh, the problem with that is that for the ancient people... A a, a solar, you know, a heliocentric, a sun-centered solar system was not assumed. They assumed an earth-centered universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it really wasn't until about 300 BC uh, by a, a Greek uh, philosopher who suggested that the earth was round Uh, And, and, well, that was actually, that was a little before uh, him suggested that the sun was the center of the solar system. But that didn't even catch on until uh, Copernicus uh, managed to prove it uh, mathematically uh, into the early, uh, you know, into the Renaissance period. So the whole uh, pre-scientific world, you know, thought that the sun revolved around a fixed earth so when the ancient israelites read the text the sun rose one assumption that they could implicate or bring into the communication event is the idea that the sun is an a, an object or if you're a pagan an agent a god that's actually in motion moving uh, re, you know relative to uh, the earth well there are other assumptions that are that are true uh, about the sun that when it rises, it's morning time. There's also the assumption that if you're out in the sun exposed and it's hot, that it can do damage uh, to you. You can get burned, it can do heat stroke. Well, depending on the context, Genesis 19, Genesis 32, the comment that when the sun rose, uh, that is just a temporal marker uh, in uh, the narrative. So the the phrase "the sun rose" serves as a chronological marker in the narrative. In a more specialized context, like you get in Jonah chapter four, you know Jonah's in a huff because he knows God's going to save the uh, Ninevites because they are repenting, and so he goes off, uh, you know, out of the city in a huff, uh, sits off in the east side of the city to see what you know what's going to happen. He kind of knows. And then the text says that the uh, sun rose, and we go, uh uh-oh, you know, this is northern, uh, well, it's nowadays northern Iraq. You know, it gets pretty darn hot there. (laughs) And we know that it's going to be a rough day for poor Jonah. And so that plays into the the plant coming up, and, you know, the Mm. sun's beating on his head. And so a a different context implicates uh, this assumption about exposure harming but nothing about the sun revolving around the earth or the earth rotating out, n- none of those assumptions have any relevance uh, in the communication setting of mm-hmm. any of these biblical texts mm-hmm. so even though the biblical author and the audience had some false assumptions about the the system in which the sun and the earth interact those assumptions are not being implicated they're not being brought into the informative in, intention uh, of uh, of the text, so mm-hmm. it, it's it's not a problem then for us to think in terms of you know there's an error in the text there, because what the biblical author and ultimately the Holy Spirit uh, guiding the biblical author, <clears throat> what they are trying to communicate does not implicate a false assumption that that misleads uh the israelite uh by teaching them wrong things about science
1: hmm yeah that's really interesting
0: so that uh that i can give you some other uh illustrations maybe from genesis 1 uh or if you want to move you know Uh,
1: uh, let's um you want to move on and come back to it yeah let's get move on and we'll come back to it okay so just the next thing on the list here so uh, in your book you you mentioned how you talked about like this idea of like literal and of course you know a lot of us are familiar with this idea of like oh we're going to assume the literal interpretation unless yeah. if the figure if unless if it's just completely obvious like jesus being the door like nobody thinks jesus is a physical door it's obvious he wasn't in that case it's figurative but most of the time we should always consider it consider it like literal but you said that, you know, through like what we've learned and what through science, that it's not that way. Can you talk about, um, they've actually like done some laboratory testing on that. Can you talk about some of that a little bit? Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so it's not, as I mentioned, it's not just relevance theorists. It's linguists in general uh, are of the, of the con- consensus opinion that the human brain does not work by uh, what, what you can call series thinking. It is, you know, your thinking is logical in a series versus parallel thinking, hmm. where you're you're considering all options at the same time. Hmm. Uh, it, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with serial, you uh, you know, you know c- computing, uh, processor. This no, c- yeah, they, they will well, not. Be. Maybe I won't use it. See, <laughs> so there's a, you know, I could talk about serial ports versus parallel ports of a computer. <laughs> I, I won't go there uh, because it doesn't accommodate your, you know, the audience. Um, so they, they talk about rather than thinking in series that the first thing that you, your brain does is it goes to the dictionary definition of the literal interpretation. And when you eliminate that as a possible option, then you start considering metaphorical uh, considerations rather than working that way. Uh, th- what the brain does is it, it considers all options simultaneously all options that at least are accessible to the person's intellect. You know, as you grow and get older, there are more and more options in terms of the meaning of words that, that come into your encyclopedic entry. So the options grow and change and expand over time. And, they, and they've and they done experiments, you know, using flashcards and things. But most interesting is they've hooked p- people up to, to electrode things on their brain and mapped what happens to the brain when they get verbal uh, stimulus. And what happens is when they are given a word or phrase, the whole brain lights up simultaneously with all of the options. And then as they're provided context, the the lights, you know, the, the brain activity is represented by lights on the screen. The lights all go out and narrow down to like a little specific area where they've they've uh, the the individual has figured out what the meaning of the word is. Now this all happens, you know, usually at the speed of light, hmm. um, because we do it intuitively and our brains function literally at this, you know, at light at well, the speed of electricity. Um, <clears throat> now it, it, that that means that in a context like the modern world, where we share a lot in common, we sort of intuitively sort through language, whether it's literal or or metaphorical, uh, just automatically by instinct. But what happens when you separate the audience from the text, like the Bible, with a two to 3,000-year gap? And a gap that is not only chronologically that wide, but culturally is quite different. You know, the, living in in the world of the ancient Near East had a lot of different assumptions about you know economics and politics and religion, hmm. uh, not to mention our worldview uh, of the physical universe. <clears throat> a lot of different assumptions. And so, what what happens is we moderns read a, a, these ancient texts and we read it with our encyclopedic entries and we realize though that there's this gap there. And so we don't read the text as intuitively as the original audience would have. Mm. And so we we end up sort of by necessity, sometimes we have to process things uh, a little more mechanically and a little more in series because we're trying to figure it out because it's a foreign situation so the the goal of uh, of interpretation is not only to know the grammar of the language as i mentioned but we have to understand the cultural background as best we can and to the degree that we can map our brains or actually map the brain of the ancient person over to our mindset to the extent that we can do that it trains our instincts to make these you know instant judgment decisions about mm. You know, is it literal or metaphorical? And, mo- and uh, most languages is, is actually metaphorical. And uh, in people, the, the studies that they've done in the lab, uh, asking people to respond to the meaning of a word that's slashed in front of them, by default, they actually will go to a metaphorical meaning before a literal one. Why is that? Relevance theory tells us because, as human beings, as creatures, we we want to uh, to maximize uh, the benefit that we expend our resources on. So our bodies are wonderfully created machines. To uh, when the, our bodies are working correctly, we we optimally utilize the nutrition that we give it for where it's needed the most and and we get rid of the waste that that trivia that's not relevant mm-hmm. and and we operate the same way really in our language that we are looking to get the most benefit out out of whatever the other person is telling us and uh i'm getting my brain is starting to wander here mm-hmm. uh yeah so uh so w- what what we want to do is to is to have our brains in tune with the way that an ancient person would have optimized the communication situation. Hmm. And, and, and very often, most of the time you will default to a metaphor because in a metaphor there's more benefit, more cognitive, that's, that's where I was going with this. <laughs> there's more cognitive benefit uh, in a metaphorical use of language. It's why poetry is so powerful and, and, and the Bible is replete with poetry. Whenever God speaks, he speaks in poetry in in Hmm. the old testament why because you know sort of pound for pound if you will figurative language carries a a better benefit cognitive benefit a a better payoff for us it packs a heavier punch Hmm. so uh unlike what you commented on and i was taught that as a first-year seminary student that literal sense is the way we go unless it makes no sense that's a wrong axiom to use Hmm. Uh, for not just Bible interpretation, but trying to function uh, in uh, in life.
1: Hmm. That's really, 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 really interesting and unexpected as well. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to think about that, and I'll be like in the bathroom, in the shower, or whatever, like, oh, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense because of that too. Yeah. And... yeah,
0: wake up in the middle of the night, and you're yeah. going to toss and turn, <laughs> there's no doubt. Now nah, you'll sleep right through it.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so um i mean you you basically explained what accommodation was uh, would yep. you is there anything else you want to add to that
0: um i try, i'm trying to think back through what i said uh <laughs> with respect to the topic at hand well you know every everyone agrees that accommodation is done I mean, of all every theological stripe it's just a question of how it works hmm. Uh, young Earth creationists hold to accommodation, and so do old Earth creationists. Uh, and and the debate then is over how accommodation is actually working. <clears throat> and I think relevance theory gives us the window into the, the right way to think that mm-hmm. problem through. I think we have to look at the cognitive environment, the background assumptions about the physical universe, the mental map, that the ancient person, not the modern person, had uh, of... Of these teachings that they were getting, what did they uh, assume about uh, mm. the universe that would be the encyclopedic entry for them? Uh, and once we sort that out, then we can better ask: Okay, in the biblical text, uh, what of, what of these background assumptions are really in operation mm. in the meaning, uh, the informative intention? Of what the biblical author and then ultimately God is the Holy Spirit is trying to uh, tell us
1: yeah so uh, something that is like a really big deal for a lot of people is the idea that like you know if we have allowed this thing called accommodation you know that implies that, like the Bible has errors in it like you know they ha- the, the biblical writers thought errors about science and cosm- cosmology and the heart and stuff like that so you know, obviously people who believe the Bible is true are going to want to push that away and say, hey, you know, we can't think of it that way. That contradicts with God's word and he's a liar, stuff like that. So, um, I mean, you've kind of talked about how, like, you know, everyone uses some type of accommodation. Mm-hmm. It's It's been a principle that people have used since the beginning of Christianity. You you noted numerous, numerous examples in your book of all throughout church history, people using accommodation. Um is there, is there anything else you want to add there as far that maybe could ease people's minds about that?
0: Yeah, <clears throat> a couple things. Uh, one, maybe give another example. I just think examples are so helpful <laughs> that, that I think everyone uh, would uh, appreciate and have to admit that presses us into some kind of model of accommodation where we, to use, this is the inside of our relevance theory, to, to, to bracket out the assumptions that are not at, in operation at play in the text and to only consider those that are it's not just the physical universe it's even human physiology that uh, is potentially problematic the bible uses the word heart uh, and you know we'd say okay I asked Jesus into my heart well that's a huge metaphor you know how helpful that is is a big problem <laughs> of course but but it's used a lot and and while well, we all know that but you know for the ancients um, again it wasn't so metaphorical they experienced their emotions that are triggered by thoughts they experienced them in you know in the chest that's you know you get an adrenaline surge in your chest It makes your heart race mm. and so they naturally connected the heart as the wow. center of emotional life the intellectual life and the will uh, they didn't know what the brain did the ancient Egyptians when they mummified a body they scraped the brain out through the no nasal cavity and threw it away but they put the heart in a very special jar to you know to preserve it because it, it's it's what they considered to be the center of the person's Uh, inner being, their inner, inner life. Hmm. And so, you know, the Bible doesn't have the the Old Testament, Greek does, but the Old Testament doesn't have a word for mind. You know, M-I-N-D, it it, it just uses the word heart, Hmm. or in some cases, like your kidneys or your liver. But the heart is the most common because they didn't think of the brain as, uh, as functioning in that way. So when the Bible uses, Old Testament uses the word heart, that is a divine accommodation to the uh, the understanding that the ancient people had of human physiology and human psychology. That, um, according you know, according to what we know, is is false. Uh, but when the Bible uses the word heart, it's not trying to teach us about anatomy and physiology. Uh, it's using the word in in the way that they intuitively understood it as this is talking about my inner being, hmm. and they weren't thinking that that uh, David or Moses was giving them uh, an, a you know a human physiology lesson <clears throat> when they referred to loving God with all your you know your heart.
1: Hmm.
0: So uh, I think that's a good illustration of the kind of language that that forces everyone to use some model of accommodation and the other thing that's helpful <clears throat> with this goes back to the the technical definition of biblical inerrancy w- what does inerrancy mean uh the the classic book on it uh, w- uh, is a collection of of papers that were read at the uh International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, back in 1977, 78 ish, when you know all the brains of the day, evangelicals got together and had a big convention to try to carefully define what they meant by inerrancy, and the definition that came out of that conference uh, came. Uh, it was in the um, statement on uh, Council on Biblical Inerrancy. It was published in the book edited by Norm Geisler by the title Inerrancy, uh, published by Zondervan, pretty sure, 1978 or so. <clears throat> in chapter 9 of that book, uh, article written by Paul Feinberg, ph- philosophical theologian at Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity College, <clears throat> he, he, he had the chapter on, on the definition. And the bottom line, after everything is said, is that uh, inerrancy means that the Bible is true in whatever it affirms is true. So, the Bible contains the record of people lying to each other, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The Bible the Bible contains lies. Whoa, 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 whoa Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In a sense, it contains lies because it's it's reporting the speech of Satan or some evil person. It's reporting the speech of somebody who's lying. Well, the Bible's not trying to affirm the truth truth proposition that that person is making the Bible is just affirming what the person said and so that's why the qualifying phrase is so important the Bible is true and what it affirms is true Hmm. and that drives us to the important question then of always in in biblical studies we want to know what is the author trying to inform us about or trying to do. The uh, Bible doesn't just give us information. The Bible also catalyzes our emotions. The Bible warns us. The Bible gives us a call to action. The Bible does lots of things. We do things with words. And so uh, biblical truthfulness means that the Bible is true in whatever it's trying to do. Uh, what is it? What is the author affirming or trying to accomplish uh, at, in that statement that is being made. Mm-hmm. And what Biblical, uh, what um, um, relevance theory does is it helps us at a technical, linguistic level understand how this communication in the Bible is operating in a way that mm-hmm. that is consistent with the classical definitions of, of biblical inerrancy. There still might be people who say that the author is trying to implicate nutty ideas about cosmology, and people can still say that the Bible is not true. But what I think relevance theory uh, demonstrates for us is that we don't we aren't forced into those conclusions. Hmm. There are other ways of thinking about it. Relevance theory by itself doesn't answer any questions. Again, it's just a model of communication that helps us to analyze carefully the communication that's happening in the Bible. Mm. Uh, Now, the the interpretive conclusions that people arrive at are are not dictated by relevance theory. It it depends on lots of other factors that we we bring uh, to the text uh, in our interpretive process.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So, I mean, even if people disagree with your view of accommodation or different views of cosmologies and what the Israelites thought, uh, even the most fundamentalist, uh, conservative person can say, hey, I can take this pr- principle of relevance and use it even if um, I don't specifically agree with your conclusions about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Really interesting stuff. Okay. So thank you for that that's really really helpful um let's get into the cosmology so uh so you know you've got your typical view of what most scholars i would say probably view of the ancient israelite cosmology and there's there's stuff people disagree about it Uh, but what would you say are like i don't know in your opinion like the the least controversial things (laughs)
0: Ha <laughs> ha, least controversial. <clears throat> I said the people that I uh, hang out with, <laughs> the Old Old Testament scholars who uh, work with ancient Near Eastern backgrounds as well as the Hebrew texts of the Old Testament and wrestle with uh, with it. Um, th- th- I would say the, the majority of people uh, that I hang out with hold to uh, a three-tiered universe. Uh, uncontested would be a two-tier universe, heavens and earth but a third tier universe uh, would argue that there's also um the belief that there's a, a, a realm a physical realm under the earth under the surface of the earth that i mean paul's affirming that when he says you know at the name of jesus every knee shall bow whether it's heaven in heaven or on earth or under the earth and every tongue will confess that jesus is lord of the glory of god the father paul is affirming there i I'll take it back not affirming he's just using as a literary trope the um because i don't want to say that he's trying to teach you know that's where i'm kind of getting got to watch my own distinctions here <clears throat> um, he's not trying to teach a cosmology he's just using the accepted cosmology of the day uh, to talk about wherever in the realm that you could even possibly imagine jesus is lord and uh, so that's a, a new testament uh example of it but uh, uh you know the people that I hang out with are all card-carrying inerrantists, members of the Evangelical Theological Society, Old Testament scholars. <clears throat> for the most part, will agree that that the Old Testament held to a three-tiered universe. Uh, the she, uh, the word Sheol is the word that's most commonly used uh, in the Old Testament for this realm. Um, how it's connected to the sea and what the boundaries are like with the earth, the sky—those those things are are <clears throat> are difficult for us to know what the ancients might even have imagined. Um, A little more contested would be whether there are, uh, whether there's an, an ocean, or reservoir of water above the heavens. In other words, you have this three tiers and is the upper tier composed of this firmament, which is a translation used in some english bible translations of of genesis 1 and uh, and ezekiel who has a vision of god in heaven uses firmament um is uh, uh, above the firmament above the heavens is there a heavenly ocean where rain ultimately comes from that would be more contested and and i have you know i've got uh, really you know smart ot scholars that i would uh, you know would Agree with on most things. Who, who would rather say that when the water talk when the Bible talks about the waters above, it's it's just metaphorically referring to rain. I, I am not of the opinion that that's the case, but I think that um, you know that actually the Bible speaks in a way that I think is difficult to escape of uh, waters. We can look if you want to look at some of the texts. You know, in a minute we can uh, look at that. Uh, You know, is the earth a dome? Um, Yeah, I mean, at this point, we're starting to try to draw a physical model in some detail that I'm not sure the ancients were certain of. And so we have to be careful to what extent we, uh, you know, we derive these, you know, these literal pictures. Uh, I don't know anyone who thinks that, uh, you know, that the earth is set on pillars uh you know that's uh you know that's an expression or that there are actually windows in the solid firmament there there are some scholars that think that the ancient israelites believed in windows in a solid dome and the windows opened up and let water through there are some uh, ot scholars that that um that attribute that to the ancients i i think at that point, there's probably a letter, a level of literalism that's not true. Dick uh, Richard Averbeck uh, has shown that, and for example, the um, uh, you know the Canaanites worshipped the god Baal, and we have texts <clears throat> that are Canaanite texts. Uh, well, they're from Ugarit; they weren't. They were in the proximity of the Canaanites <clears throat> that give us the stories of, that the ancients believed about Baal. The god, we say Baal, I guess, <clears throat> and in those texts, the uh, it talks about Baal, who's the storm god. He has a temple in the heavens, and his temple has windows, and the text speaks about the windows opening so that thunder can come out and rain can gush out. Uh, you know, and, and and the ancients, you in in. Um, In the the language of of the Ugaritic language, it has the word for the window of Baal's domain right in parallel with the idea of an opening in the clouds. So that the poetry equates the ancient poetry itself equates the window with an opening in the clouds, so they understood when they use the word window, they knew that they were speaking metaphorically, not in a literal fashion. So, I think the same is probably true of pillars. The, the, um, you know, so we're we're really delving into trying to figure out what was in the brain of the ancient person. Um, and uh, and so we'll probably argue about that till the cows come in. but but some basic contours, tripartite universe, uh, the earth is the center the center of the universe with the sun revolving around the earth. I think that's pretty well uh, established. Um, The earth perhaps floating on the ocean of water, flat earth probably, whether it's floating or not, you know, I'm not certain of that. Uh, Ancient Mesopotamians thought of it that way, as did the Egyptians. Whether the Israelites did, I I don't know. So those are some uh, cosmological, ancient cosmological ideas. And we can look at some texts, Uh, You you know, maybe I can just, you know, name them in the interest of time, but Amos 9, 2 and 3 uh, speaks about all three domains, heaven, earth, and and the realm of the dead. Uh, The um, book of Psalms in Genesis, uh, in Psalm 136, verse 5, speaks about the earth being uh, spread out over the waters. Um, Psalm 148 speaks about uh, the heavens, the highest heavens, and the, and the waters above the highest heavens. Uh, Psalm 104 speaks about God uh, constructing uh, his temple. It, the beams of his chambers are constructed, constructed in the waters. Now, you know, whether that's a heavenly ocean or not, you um, we could go to Genesis, and I think that Genesis pushes us that way pretty hard. Uh, when it uh, when it talks about God separating the waters uh, that are <clears throat> uh, the waters above and the waters that are below, and uh, in the waters above there are waters that are, are that are above with respect to the firmament. Whether you define the firmament as a as a sort of a, a, a Two-dimensional plane that that separates the atmosphere f- that we live in from the domain of the heavenly beings, or whether we, some translations translate it as the word expanse. So it's like the atmosphere, the expanse of the atmosphere. <clears throat> um either way, there's water, the waters, the cosmic ocean is above that. And the prepositions in Genesis 1, I think force us. Uh, to that conclusion unless you can prove that it's metaphorical in some way Uh, and there's arguments that you can try to do that but i'm not convinced uh, of them in part because when you go to mesopotamia or you go to egypt um, it's very clear that they believed that the earth is almost like in a bubble that was surrounded by a cosmic ocean Uh, and we even have pictures that you know that were given in ancient egypt of the, the goddess of the sky the goddess newt who's arched over the earth holding back and and the pictures have captions so we know what they believe these parts of the universe are and there is an ocean you know the, the infinite cosmic ocean waters are outside of the goddess newt uh, above her arch over the earth and in between the you know her arch and the earth is the atmosphere in which we all uh, inhabit and uh, and live <clears throat> um i don't know how many i don't know how much uh zach you want to go more into ancient cosmic uh ge- geography um yeah i click a good one uh ecclesiastes 1 5 is important, uh, not for the three parts, but in terms of the Earth being the center. Talks about the sun rising and then going, going again, you know, at its setting, and then it and then it follows, hurries itself in its circuit to start over again. That verse is really difficult to explain, apart from this notion that the, that the sun is an object that's in motion relative to a fixed earth and it makes a journey, you know, in, you know, under the earth and starts over again in, in, uh, in the morning. Psalm 19, uh, verse four also speaks of the sun coming out of his chamber rising. And then it, and then it goes through a process migrating across the sky until it sets, uh, to the other end of heaven. And, and it's, and it's the, it's the horizons because it's the word of God goes forth, you know, in the same extent across the known, across the world. Uh, God's word penetrates everywhere in the known world. And it, and the Psalm speaks of the known world as having an edge to it, that the sun navigates. Daniel chapter four talks about this tree growing up uh, into the heavens. And from the tree, from the vantage point, you can see, you can see that tree from the ends of the earth well, the earth can't be around or you wouldn't see the tree. You know, it's got to be a flat earth with a fixed finite limit to it. Uh, Now, the Bible's not trying to teach flat earth. The Bible's not trying to teach that the sun is revolving around the earth. Relevance theory gets us to say what assumptions are in operation. The, the, The language gets used, but but the language of the cosmology is not trying to teach us affirm anything about cosmic geography. Uh, it's affirming other truths and it's using the language of cosmic geography. It, it's accommodating to to what the ancient Israelite would have assumed because good communication is optimal, it's efficient, uh, it's, it's trying to, for the sake of argument, it's setting things aside. Uh, it's God talking to to little children. And we think we're so smart in science right now, 50 years from now. I won't be alive, but, you know, but who? if the Lord tarries, we don't know what is on the horizon scientifically in 50 years, but we will be, humans will be laughing at what we believed in 2023. I guarantee you. So, you know, th- this language is, is accommodating, uh, really, a, a, assumptions that are erroneous that we hold today. And the biblical text cuts through all of that and speaks to us uh, in its truth um, without implicating, without teaching these erroneous cosmological uh, assumptions.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, beams into waters you mentioned, uh, but you don't actually think that there's like Col- the, you don't think the Israelites thought of like columns, like holding up the earth, right?
0: They probably didn't. It's possible they did. I just don't have any way of, of affirming um, what they really did believe. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the question, because it leads me to some really important uh, <laughs> okay. evidence to, to think about. So I, so I try to look for, I try to look for evidence in the texts of the Bible or the ancient Near East. That give me a window into what they really did think about these things, and they're just mm-hmm. other than using the language of pillars or columns, um, we, we don't know what they really thought. But yeah. we did, we do have language that tells us that they thought of of a realm under the surface of the earth where uh, where the deceased inhabited, called Sheol. <clears throat> and let's move away. It's it's helpful to move away from poetic. Texts to move into uh, into narrative texts, and I, I you know I like to use narrative texts with my really conservative colleagues because you know now we're out of the realm of metaphor we're just straight narrative you know you take it literally right yeah right <clears throat> nobody takes the Bible straight
1: literally <clears throat> um, except except them right
0: well but they they aren't consistent <laughs> in that because you know I talked to uh, you know a Mormon friend. Who reads that God has arms and hands. Uh, and I say, Well, does that also mean that he has wings? Uh. You know, well, no, 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 that's metaphor. So, you know, so <laughs> nobody reads the Bible consistently in a pure literalistic yeah. manner. So l- let me give you some narrative texts that if you read, if you take it literal, well, I think you've got to kind of read it straightforward because it's a window into what the ancient Israelites believed. <clears throat> Numbers Sixteen. The Korahites rebel against Moses, and God judges them, causes an earthquake or whatever it is. The earth opens up, and the Korahites are swallowed up, and they fall. They 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 are swallowed up alive and fall into Sheol alive. Well, for that narrative to make any sense, you know, in the real world, in their real world they had to believe that the dead really do go somewhere down below. There's no other way of making sense of the narrative. Mm. Uh, It's not poetics. It's describing what something, an event that I believe actually happened. And it's, you know, it is, uh, it only operates that event communicates to the Israelites, op, only operating in a sensible way if they really believe that Sheol was down there and that's where the deceased go to live. An- another to live, to, you know, well, to inhabit when they dead. <laughs> another text that's a similar one is 1 Samuel 28 <clears throat> when King Saul goes to the, the witch of Endor, the ne- necromancer, someone who mm. conjures the dead back uh, to communicate with us. And they, they have a, either a vision or, actually, with their eyes, see, because God is either accommodating them in a vision or he's actually accommodating them with the spirit of Samuel coming out of the ground. The earth opens up and Samuel comes out. He's coming out of the realm of the dead to haunt, uh, t- to his spirit, to haunt Saul and to give him a, a prophetic doom oracle that he's going to die. And, and the necromancer, the witch of Endor, is terrified because something happens that normally doesn't happen, I think. And, and so they, they both experienced this event that makes sense to them, only um, playing to their assumption that the realm of the dead is a place underground. Now, we don't believe that. You know, we put bodies in the ground, because they go to dust that way, you know. It's appropriate to our theological construct mm-hmm. uh, that that's why we bury people. Uh, and in fact, the necromancer probably did what most necromancers in the ancient areas did: is they dug a pit <clears throat> to bring the to help bring the body back mm. or the person back, because you're you're going down in into the ground. Uh, they had tubes in Mesopotamia. They had tubes going in the ground because you could feed your deceased ancestors with water through the tubes that are underground. They buried people under the house in the floor. You pull up the you know, floorboards, if there are floorboards, and you bury them in, in the ground inside the house. <clears throat> um, so that they believe in this realm of the dead and the uh-huh. biblical texts seem to make no distinction between what the Israelites believed about the afterlife underground, and what the ancient Near Easterners uh, believed uh, as well, and I, I already mentioned the texts in Ecclesiastes and Psalm 19 that seem to affirm that they had the same view of uh, of the earth <clears throat> fixed with the sun revolving. So, mm-hmm. so, so, Zach, I look for texts that that uh, seem to demonstrate in a positive way what the ancient israelite believed and we just don't have the information about mm. pillars uh, mm. or windows or anything like that and i'm i and i gave you an example from ugaritic texts why windows should be interpreted metaphorically
1: mm. yeah that makes a lot of sense and something i like about you and your book and the way you write and think is that you're not some like you know scholar that's just like you know thinking about not Pejoratively, not you're not like some liberal scholar just looking, you know, for the you know everything in the in the Bible has to be some like super literal like, it they're ancient peoples that's how they thought like you you think about it critically like you're you're willing to say hey you know that is an ancient way they looked at the Bible, or an ancient way they looked at the world and you know some of these like we're actually just taking it too literally and I I really like yeah. that um, I like that approach a lot so um you can feel free to keep going with your different verses but um just a quick little side note so i've got this right here oh good illustration yes so um let's see so I'm, i'm just trying to figure out what you want me to change here so i've got i've got some windows right here yeah. So maybe I need to exit that out, right? Yeah, I
0: get rid of the windows.
1: Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I, get I don't ri- have... <laughs> Wait, what were we going to say?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, pillars, you know, that's a tough one. There is that black realm above the serpent. <clears throat> and in Mesopotamia and Egypt, they did believe in... A, a serpent was the cosmic chaos monster that inhabited the deeps. And mm. they thought that the deeps did wrap around under the earth, I think. So this... Uh, this oh. um, illustration well the sun doesn't have wings (laughs) you know they they depicted the sun with wings because it it was an object that metaphorically flew through the sky Mm -hmm. um but i don't don't think they really thought it had wings Mm -hmm. um but that that's a pretty good diagram actually i think i think they thought of a spherical or not spherical i mean a, a circular earth we have a a myth in ancient Mesopotamia about the King Atana going up to heaven and and on the back of a bird and he looks down and he sees the earth as a circle on the ocean. Ah. And we actually have a map from Mesopotamia, a map of the earth that has the earth, Babylon of course is the center, but it's a map of the earth and it's a circle circle that uh, has ocean all around it with some islands. Mm. So again, those are texts that are reinforcing to us that they really did think about the Earth as flat, mm-hmm. somehow floating or fixed upon ocean waters, mm-hmm. and, um, and so that was a pretty good diagram. <laughs> uh, Appreciate
1: yeah. it. So, so I'm glad that we don't have to, you know, exit out too much there. That's good. Well, um, <laughs> that's awesome.
0: Just as long <laughs> as we, as long as we, uh, by virtue of relevance theory. Uh, as long as we are affirming that scripture is not trying to teach that model. Yes, right. Uh, Right. Scripture assumes that kind of, that sort of model Mm. in the language that it uses, because that's what most efficiently would communicate to an ancient Israelite. But the text nowhere is sort of trying to teach that that's the way it is. The, The closest example is in Genesis 1, and maybe we can wrap up with, you know, go back to some slides uh, on this. <clears throat> this is the most. Uh, well, I'll give you two examples. Uh, the second one um, is the most difficult example I know. Okay, first one, Genesis one sixteen. The greater and lesser <clears throat> lights on on the um, fourth day of creation, God creates the luminaries. Now. You know, in the ancient as well as modern view of interpreting Genesis one, the first three days give structure separation of light from darkness first day separation of the waters above and waters below Uh, on this is the second day, the third day, the earth emerges out of the water separating land and sea, then on the fourth day, the text circles back, if you will, to the first day. And now you get the luminaries. You know you have the separation of light and darkness. Now you have the things that govern the day and govern the night. <clears throat> and there's the sun in the day, and the moon and the stars are uh, are at night. Uh, just to finish it out, and I'll come back to the lights. Uh, the fifth, <clears throat> the fifth day, you get uh, the uh, oh, also on the uh, on the. Uh, uh, Yeah, on the fourth day you get the lights and and the creation uh yeah and then on the fifth day you get the creation uh circling back to the second day you get the birds that inhabit the heavens above and the fish that inhabit the sea below so you've got the second day got waters above the sky uh, and the waters below and so the fifth day fills out The structure that was created on the second day and then on the sixth day you get God creating the things that. uh, inhabit the land, because on the third day you had the land separated from the water, and so the land is filled uh, on the sixth day, so you get in Genesis one you get the this paneling effect of of form days one to three and fullness on days four to six. A very elegant literary structure that I, I think should point us away from a literal uh, earth history reading of the text. That's how I think the ancient Israelite would have read that text in a in a literary sort of way. But again, that <clears throat> I could it takes more discussion to prove that. So let's come back to Genesis one sixteen. So God um, makes the greater the greater lights. Well, for the ancient. Uh, Israelite, they, they knew that the sun and the moon were bigger than the stars and brighter than the stars. They didn't understand that there were gas giants out there in the universe. Uh, they didn't understand that the moon only reflected the light of the sun. They didn't understand <clears throat> that uh, that the sun was like four million times bigger than the moon. Uh, yeah, right, because the moon is one-fourth the size of the earth, and the earth is only one-millionth of the size of the sun. So four million size difference. Uh, they, you know, they thought that the sun and the moon were bigger than the stars. Absolutely. And that's a false assumption. <clears throat> Whereas we know today that the sun and the moon are l- larger and brighter, relatively speaking. Well, the text isn't worried about trying to teach uh, astronomy well, about the nature of those astronomical bodies it's only working on the assumption that these bodies are more conspicuous and therefore they serve nicely as markers for uh, for the days and and the seasons that are of supreme interest to an agrarian culture that does farming. They want to know where's water come from they want to know where the sun fits into things they want to know, about land and dirt relative to water. They want to know that when they plant a seed in the ground, that it brings forth its kind. And when they uh, when they um, put their sheep together to mate, that they're going to get other sheep from that and not cockroaches. And, and that's what Genesis one is talking about. You know, they reproduce after their kind. It's it's giving the um, agrarian Israelite the confidence that God has given a structure. To the universe that provides for life to flourish and helps them in their agrarian tasks and with respect to the to the um moon and the sun it also helps them with the calendar so that they're able to observe the the um ceremonies the festivals in god's temple and of course we go with walton's view which uh made probably most scholars do It goes back to the ancient rabbis that genesis 1 is describing the creation of a cosmic temple then these um, these cosmic lights are governing the rhythm the rhythm of the religious celebrations in the cosmic temple and also the earthly temple uh, that gets built so The text informs agrarian and religious interests with regard to seasonal rhythms in a temple calendar. It's not trying to inform us about all the properties of these luminaries uh, in the the sky. All right, that one's not too tough. This next one is the hardest one that I have ever wrestled with of the cosmic language. It's it's the, the discussion about the waters above the firmament because it does seem to um, bring in this assumption about there being a reservoir of water above the firmament. And, you know, I think, well, let me me read the text because, and God said, let there be an expanse, a firmament in the midst of the waters. In other words, you had this cosmic ocean and the firmament splits these cosmic waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament or the expanse, depending on how you want to translate it, and separated the waters that were under the expanse, that's the ocean, and the waters that were above with respect to the expanse. It's not the clouds. And then later you have the birds. The heavenly bodies are fixed in the firmament, uses a Hebrew preposition, in or on and the waters are over and the birds fly across the surface or the face of the firmament and they knew that the clouds would block the sun and the moon and so whatever the waters are that are you know so the sun and the moon are above the clouds and the waters are above the sun and the moon so the, the waters above can't be the clouds, which some of my colleagues are trying to, try to argue, but I, I'm not being convinced. So Genesis, in a, in a rather unsettling way for me, seems to draw in this cosmic assumption about a heavenly ocean. Now, l- let's look at what the text is doing, though, that I think helps mitigate the problem. We have these false assumptions in the ancient world. Marduk made the rain source. If you read the uh, the account of Marduk creating the, uh, the universe, he takes the Tiamat, the cosmic ocean goddess. He kills her. He splits her in half, uh, he, he takes her carcass. So she's simultaneously the limitless cosmic ocean and she's a dragon or a serpent uh, in the water. Now, ancients are smart people. They knew that it was a logical contradiction to have an infinite ocean and a finite dragon. So they are speaking in analogical metaphorical language to some extent. But <clears throat> Marduk takes the carcass of Tiamat and he splits it into. He takes her her skin and makes the firmament of her skin to hold back the waters above so that they don't fall down <clears throat> in a chaotic way below and those waters then, the text later tells us that he takes the waters above and forms the clouds uh, with them as as though they are breasts that can give us rain you know as a breast would give milk so the clouds are like that uh giving us rain but there's this assumption about Marduk creating this cosmic expanse Uh, and the cosmology necessarily in the ancient world involves the creation of the gods cosmogony in the chart there that's the fancy word for how the universe came into being <clears throat> and a ka- theogony is how the gods came into being so in the, whether it's mesopotamia or egypt as the universe is is brought into being by the the original god <clears throat> and the and the god creates these other parts of the universe they are inseparably connected with a manifestation of the deities, as well. So the heavenly you know, the, the ocean is this cosmic goddess. Uh, the sky in Egypt is a goddess. The earth is a god. <clears throat> yeah, in some mythologies, the earth is a goddess. Uh, the sun is a god. The moon is a is a god. So you you get the creation of the gods with the creation of the cosmos. The, the two are just inseparable. Now, I think Moses in Genesis 1 is teaching Israel that no, it's not Marduk or any other God who is your source of life and rain. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. <clears throat> now, it's true that the sky contains contains condensed evaporation, but I'm not sure that that's a true assumption that's implicated in the text. It's an assumption, happens to be true. But I don't think the text is talking about that. Now, is the text trying to affirm that there really is an ocean up there that uh, constitutes part of the universe? I would say, the way I try to explain it, is that for the sake of argument, Moses is granting a an ancient Near Eastern cosmic picture only to deny it and to offer a counter narrative to all of the ancient Near Eastern creation texts that have the earth in creation coming out of the cosmic waters the first God comes out of the cosmic ocean creates everything else that's inseparable from the gods that was universally believed in the ancient world and Moses being trained in Egypt as he was He knew all these Egyptian texts. He knew the the Mesopotamian traditions. He copied as a youngster, I'm sure. He was trained as a a scribe to write Egyptian, and he would have copied these Egyptian mythological texts. He knew this stuff inside out. And he is drawing the, the language, the imagery, into Genesis for the sake of argument to tell the story a different way where Yahweh the God of Israel is outside of creation he's the spirit it's the spirit of God who's hovering over the waters he doesn't emerge out of the waters like you get in uh, in Egypt Yahweh is over the waters he's independent outside of creation as he superintends it and brings out of the these uninhabitable chaotic waters he brings forth the conditions and structure that gives life so that that's how i um grapple with you know the um text of of genesis one six and seven and it's the most difficult one because it seems to give lip service to this cosmic ocean but I, i i would argue that the text is not trying to teach us that that's the way it is it's for the sake of argument, drawing upon that assumption, uh, in order to tell a, a more important truth, uh, in a different way.
1: Wow. That's, that's really, really interesting. Hmm. That that'll take some, uh, contemplating, uh, this idea of, uh, for sake of argument idea, uh, but you know, that, that make a lot of sense. Okay. So. Yeah, so that's that's basically all the questions I got for you. Um, right. Is there any any other thing you wanted to add that um, you you feel like it would be it'd be good for your my audience to um, know? Let me see, or we can just leave it for the for people to check out the book.
0: Uh, yeah, I've said pretty much everything that I think I need to say. Um, looking, <clears throat> I'm looking over my notes here, Zach, and. <laughs> You know, I've given you, you know, the the hardest, you know, and that Genesis illustration is the only yeah. one that I really wrestle with, and and makes me wince a little bit, huh. uh, to be honest. But but it's in a way, it's no different than, you know, Saul coming out of the ground. Mm. You know, the spirit of Saul, the you know his if you want to call it ghost, comes out of the ground. I mean, God is, he's not affirming that there's a realm under the earth that. Mm that uh, actually exists where the deceased are running around he just adopts that world picture uh, because yes. that's the understanding the starting point that he can use to communicate to with baby talk to mm. you know to his children uh, israel so that just like we talk to our children and we kind of dumb it down um, we say things that are half truths. You know, b- the baby is growing in mommy's tummy. Oh no, it's not. <laughs> you know, her, her stomach processes food. Her womb processes embryos. You know, we don't go there with our kids. Uh, y- you know, uh, and so in a way, we're accommodating false assumptions about uh, about human physiology. Hmm. And we wouldn't say we're lying to our children. Uh, it's just that later. You know, later in life, we sort of correct it, but so far, God hasn't corrected our cosmic assumptions, although he's, with his word, although he's given us the brains and the capacity and science to explore this on our own and to correct it ourselves. Hmm. Uh, we're not correcting things that he's taught us that are wrong. Uh, he, he just has never addressed cosmic structures in a way to teach it to us. Uh, he's letting us figure it out. Uh, On Hmm. our own. And I I think that's the exciting work of a scientist is that God has given scientists the, you know, the sacred, the sacred task of coming to understand um, how he has put together his cosmos. The Hmm. Bible tells us why, uh, but uh, science can tell us how, and the two are not in conflict. Hmm. Uh, It's uh, the, the old conflict, the war between Bible and science is a myth. <laughs> uh, Neil, um, I forgot his first name. I wanna say Cornelia, it's not, uh, Plantinga.
1: Alvin Plantinga, sure. Alvin,
0: thank you. Alvin Plantinga wrote a book, a really good book, Where the Conflict Really Lies. Uh, if you've not read it, Zach, it's one that you'd, you would enjoy where the conflict really lies and he goes through kind of the history of thought uh showing that uh that christianity has never been at odds with science uh it, it's hmm. it's the making of liberal intelligentsia and it's the making of fundamentalist christianity huh. uh, and that uh, among christian intellectuals there's never been uh, a war with science
1: that's really really that's that's interesting that's probably another topic in itself um yeah. So, uh, just came to mind. So I've always, this is more of a new Testament topic. So, you know, if that's not your okay. category, that's okay. Um, uh, so, you know, so G- Jesus, um, you know, he's baptized by John and, uh, I guess the Holy spirit descends on like a dove and some, some, some that kind of nature there. And there's this almost, if I'm remembering correctly, like he, like he goes up into the sky or something like that. Uh, you mean uh, in his ascension? Yeah, in his ascension, right. So, yeah,
0: yeah, in Acts chapter 1.
1: Yeah, so how do you <clears throat> understand that?
0: Uh, this, uh, well, fortunately, the biblical text at his baptism makes it clear that the Spirit comes like a dove. Hmm. Now, what what Jesus actually saw, I mean, was there actually a bird there that was the embodiment of the Holy Spirit? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a theological problem with that. <laughs> um, you know, God can appear in the in the form of a fire god can appear in the form of a human being in the old testament god incarnates himself in a real human being unites Mm -hmm. his his person in two natures or unites two natures in his person um the second person uh so i don't I, i don't know what jesus really saw or or whatever but we're told that there's some kind of metaphor there but in jesus's ascension um I think the disciples actually saw him ascend, physically, bodily, uh, to toward heaven, okay. in a way that's similar. And I, I use this uh, illustration in uh, in my book. I didn't, one of the texts I didn't get out, but in uh, First Kings, uh, <clears> or <throat> in the Second Second Kings. Uh, no, it's First Kings. It's so when uh, uh, when Elijah, Second Kings,
1: probably six or so. Elijah oh yes yeah
0: eight second kings eight or something he, yeah he
1: pulls a he pulls an enoch
0: yeah he pulls an enoch um now enoch just disappears but oh. we're told in you know that that elisha uh you know the protege of elijah sees his master ascend in a chariot uh, pulled by angels and now that is similar to the issue of jesus bodily going mm-hmm. into heaven Uh, and there's some kind of accommodation going on there and, you know, is, is heaven really above us? No, not physically. I mean, I mean, you know, we send rockets into outer space. I mean, it's heaven, you know, theologians would tell you today, as I think they would in the ancient world, that heaven is another dimension now an ancient ancient theologian may not they may that you know maybe the apostles actually thought that heaven was a place if you shot a, in a rocket ship far enough up you would reach it i, I don't know i mean yeah. you put yourself in a heavenly chariot you get there uh, jesus bodily gets there but i i think we would want to affirm that heaven is a place but it's in a different dimension of space uh so um Jesus's bodily ascension uh, is a, another good. Uh, is, I'm glad you brought it up. Another good example of accommodation to probably what we'd say would be a false assumption uh, on the part of the apostles.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. i I've, I've never heard an actual commentary on that. So that's that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, so I'm yeah. not a New Testament guy. So <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Right. So um uh, yeah anyways i appreciate you coming on here this has been a lot of fun a lot of interesting uh even after reading your book this is a lot of this is like oh wow well, you know that makes total sense and it's really really helpful and uh, i appreciate you talking and coming on here um uh, where can people check out your book obviously amazon uh any other recommendations
0: yeah if you uh you can actually go uh, right to the publisher as well with stock Uh, it's it's a cascade imprint of with whiffenstock so uh i don't know um it's worth checking out because amazon's not always got the best price (laughs) um you know might whiffenstock might uh, in some instances so yeah i would check there um yeah there are some other places that uh other Cushion book distributor type places and things mm-hmm. <clears throat> that get you a discount so it's worth shopping around but thank you for sure. for plugging it and, I, and just a warning I mean it is in some places it's just really thick dense reading, mm-hmm. but other places it's, you know, for a, a person who's interested enough to explore and to think it, it, it mm-hmm. is not, uh, you know, beyond um, a person's comprehension. I try to accommodate, in, you know, in some in some places, yeah. and also, you know, put the some cookies in the lower shelf, and also put uh, the cookies uh, at the highest shelf possible. So uh, someone who's a scholar, if they want to check me out, they can track me down uh, in my sources, and you know, and uh, and see for themselves. But thank you for the advertisement yeah, sure. uh, of the book, and uh, I, I hope, uh, boy, we've got a long time here, you know, hour and a half almost. So uh, hopefully, people have stayed awake.
1: Awesome. All right. So, yeah, anyways, this has been a lot of fun, really interesting stuff. Uh, Thank you for coming on here. And I, I I hope you have a great rest of your night.
0: Thank you, Zach. You too. Thanks for having me.